All right, good morning. You know, I'm going to miss that bumper when we leave Joshua, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm thinking of using that for the You Are Here series. <laughs> Maybe we'll just call it You Were, were There. But anyway, um, appreciate Cole and the team doing that. Good morning, my name is Pastor Dale. Open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 23 today. Chapter 23. If you know Joshua, there's only 24 chapters. Next week is the final wrap. But today we're going to look at one of two final messages that Joshua is going to deliver to the people. So turn there and we'll enjoy it together. Father God, thanks so much for your word. Wow, what a, what a joy it is to have a God that wants to, um, as mysterious as he is, he wants to take the mystery out of life. He wants us to understand him. He wants us to understand ourselves. He wants us to understand this relationship we have with our God. So today, uh, teach us about that. Help us understand it more clearly, that we can live in response to it. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. You know, death comes in different ways for different people. I was with my grandmother um, and watched her pass into the presence of God. Looking up at the ceiling and I'll never know exactly what she saw, but something all of a sudden took her out of extreme pain with a big joyful smile on her face. She started staring at the ceiling and repeating the word Jesus. And then she closed her eyes and she passed. I'll never forget that. My dad, very different. I got a phone call when I was away from home running a camp that my dad had had a heart attack, was in a coma. We rushed back that very next day, spent several days in the hospital. Uh, he never woke up. I never had a last conversation with my dad. I regret that. My mom, um, just about uh, 17 months ago, uh, I was with my mom as she passed into the presence of Christ. In her case, though, it was different from my dad because my mom uh, knew it was coming. She'd had cancer that had ravished her body. Um, and she had slipped into hospice care, uh, going through organ failure. The doctors told us when they took her off dialysis, you have no more than seven days. It's just a medical fact. But especially at the beginning of that, her mind was clear. <clears throat> so for several days, we had the privilege of having conversations. And the neat thing I remember about that was she would pull her children or her grandchildren, they were almost all there, uh, she'd pull them close to her bed, she could hardly speak, and she would whisper things to them. When you know you're about to die, 
your conversations change. What if this week you knew you had seven days, like my mom? What if this week you knew, maybe it's seven days, maybe it's four days, maybe it's only one day, but you knew you have a day, and you have a final conversation with people you love. Do you think you'd talk about important things? Yes or no? All right, today, you have the privilege of listening in on one of those conversations. In Joshua 23, verse 14, you read this. Joshua says this, Now behold, today I am going the way of all the earth. It's a nice euphemism. I am going the way of all the earth. Joshua is now 110 years old. He's been in good health. But he knows now that he's dying. That's what he means. I'm going by the way of all the earth. Kuma, kuna, whatever. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's like the circle of life deal, although different worldview. But he knows he's dying. He knows that like everyone dies. That he's lived to be 110, but he can't live forever. And for whatever reason, and we don't know what was going on, but probably he could sense in his own spirit, in his own body, that his time was up. So he begins one of two conversations. In chapter 3, he's going to gather together the leaders of Israel and have a conversation. In chapter 24, he's going to broaden the scope and he's going to call the whole nation together in a mass assembly and deliver his final challenge which you'll hear next week. But today we're going to listen in as a, as a man of God who has really done a great job. This man is a warrior who, who knew and learned a lot of wisdom. His experience as he had led Israel, as he had saw them both mess up and fail and suffer for it and also succeed in battle, he'd been, he'd, he had overseen the campaign for the land, what we call the campaign for the promise. The campaign for the promised land, in our case in Christ, the campaign for the promised life. He had been there and he was wise in battle, but you know he wasn't just wise in how to take the land, he was wise in how to take life. And when it comes to final conversations, he says nothing about making sure he passes on his best military strategies. Because he knows that Israel is now in the land. In fact, to help you kind of set the context, in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5, it begins with this. So catch it with me, okay? It says, Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side. And Joshua was old, advanced in years. The best we can do as we figure the timeline here is this is about 25 years after they had kind of the, the cessation of, of the major military campaigns. So in other words, you got to picture this. There are people now who were born after the warfare had ended, who were now young adults, having kids. 
So the young adults of Israel were old enough that they never even remember crossing the river Jordan miraculously. They never remembered what happened in the wilderness. They never remembered the battle for Jericho. They were not there. They weren't even born yet. But now they're the future of Israel. So Joshua is about to deliver some wisdom. It says that Joshua called all of Israel for their elders, their heads, their judges, verse 2, their officials, and he said to them, I am old, advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done up to the, up, has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. He's reminding them of how they came to possess this land that was now theirs. He says, it's the Lord that has been fighting for you. Verse 4, see, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all of the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun, the Mediterranean. And he sets the stage and he says, the Lord your God, he will thrust them out from before you and drive them out from you before you and you will possess the land just as the Lord your God had promised. There were still pockets of people living amongst them, but yet they possessed the promised land. And it was a gift from God. God fought for you. God delivered it to you. God had me deliver it to you as your inheritance. So it's by grace that you have the land. Remember that, right? It's very clear. Part of his message is you didn't earn this. God delivered it to you. Yeah, you, you were involved in the process. You picked up the sword. You went to war as God directed you. But it was crystal clear who delivered the land. And he reminds them of that. It's a gift from God. So having received this incredible gift from God, now Joshua has seen a generation be born that is living in the land without a lot of the conflict that forced everyone else to stay dependent upon God. So now he delivers the first of two major messages. So I want to look at them. I've entitled this message, Flirting with the Gods. So listen to God's word. There are two big ideas, and we're going to unpack them in detail. You ready? Here we go. Pick it up in verse 6. Be very firm. Now, there are three commands buried in the text. Don't miss those. When you hear them, underline them. Get out a pen. You're not smart enough to remember this stuff, okay? Neither am I. I encourage you, mark your Bibles up. I hope, you, I hope your Bible starts looking trashed after a while because it's well used, not disrespectfully. It says, be very firm. There's your first command. To keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, but stay right on course, so that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you. Talking about the other pagan nations. These which remain among you. Or mention the name of their gods. Or make anyone swear by their gods. Or serve them. Or bow down to them. But... You are to cling to the Lord your God. There it is, number two. You are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done in this, as you, as you have done to this day. You're doing it. For the Lord has driven out the great and the strong nations from before you, and as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. No one can stand against you when you're walking with your God. One of your men puts to flight a thousand of theirs. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised. 
So, take diligent heed. There is the third one. There's three. Take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Pull up right there. In the first 11 verses, what I want to show you is the big idea is, look, be strong, stay strong in Christ, stay strong in your God, but focus your affections on your God. Now, I love the fact that these three commands are so clear that I want to pop them on the screen in front of you. In fact, they're already there. Good. Good. Yeah. I love it when they're better than me in the booth. Be very firm to keep and to do all that is written, verse 6. Cling to the Lord your God, verse 8. And take diligent heed to love the Lord your God in verse 11. Let me back up and talk about each of those a little bit. Be very firm in the Lord first. It's interesting that Joshua started this whole book in Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 through 8 with the exact same words. And there he said, be strong and walk, be careful to walk according to the word. Uh, Don't turn to the right or to the left. I mean, he just, he started this whole campaign with that challenge. And he comes back to it at the end and he says, careful obedience to God's word is foundational to your life in the land. Don't ever question that. So he begins with the issue of obedience. But then I want you to see how these fit together as a package. In verse 8, then he says, and cling to the Lord your God. Now, it's interesting this word cling to. It's the same idea uh, of, of obedience, but now it focuses on the relationship, the person of God, not just the commands of God. He doesn't just say cling to the Word of God. He says cling to the God of the Word. That's good. That's not even in my notes. I need to write that down. Okay. (laughs) Sometimes I get one like that. Okay. The Word. Okay. That's why second service is a little bit better. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Nah, I'm just kidding. First service is better. Okay. But, you know, don't just cling to the, the Word of God, but to the God of the Word. And he says, your faith isn't just in the Word, it's in the God who produced it. Cling to Him. The word cling to in Hebrew means to cleave. You ever heard that word before in Scripture? For this reason, God creates woman. And then He says, for this reason, a man and a woman. He says, a man and his wife, you are to leave your father and mother and cleave to your wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That same word for cleaving, talking about the sexual union in marriage, the unity in marriage, the oneness in marriage of a husband and a wife, is actually dropped right into this passage. It's a very relational word. It's a word that that speaks and brings back memories of a husband and a wife committing to each other. And you're going to see that all through this passage. So he says, cleave to your God. Like a husband and a wife when the two become one flesh and have a covenant in marriage to be committed for life. That's the type of of commitment that he's calling for. So there's this commitment of cleaving to one another. Trusting in, staying true to one another. And then thirdly, verse 11, so that, so then, take diligent heed to love the Lord your God. Now, what's that come back to? See, that's the emphasis of of, of not only being obedient to the Word of God because of your cleaving and, and commitment and trust in God Himself, but then it flows out of a deep love for your God. Now, when I put this together, let me give you a diagram. I like pictures. Boom, here it is. Okay, boom. There we go. There's the timing. Boom. Grace. 
It started with grace in verse 1 through 5. Remember, you possess something that God has given you. Now I want you to think and kind of adapt this to our life as Christians. You are alive by grace. You have the promised life by the grace of God. It was a gift to you. You did nothing to earn it. Christ earned it on the cross. He gave it to you. You live and breathe under the grace of God. Wow! Now therefore, I, I put them in reverse order though. And here's why. Therefore, the grace motivates me to love God, and the deeper my love is for God, the more I trust and cling to my God, and the more I trust in my God, I obey my God. See, Jesus hinted at this when Jesus said in John 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The secret to obedience goes back to love and trust and obedience. And what I love about this paradigm is I believe if you learn nothing else today, we can knock off early and have an extra donut in the plaza. Because this is the Christian life. And you don't find it in the Gospels only, you find it in Joshua. And you know why? Because God has always related to His people by this formula. Some people think, well, in the Old Testament, they're living under the law and trying to work their way to God. That's a bunch of crap. That's not true. That's in Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word. Okay? But the reality is, the reality is in the Old Testament, New Testament, it's always by grace that you have a relationship with God. They didn't earn it in the Old Testament. You don't earn it in the New Testament. It's always based on the, the work of Christ on the cross. We look back at the cross. They looked forward to the cross. But the reality is, it's when I, when I understand the real grace of God, that I'm not good enough to earn it. God gave it to me. He gave them the land. He gives us life. When I get that, and I, wow, that motivates me to love this God. And when I love Him, I cling to Him, I trust in Him, and I obey Him. So obedience is not out of, Ooh, I'm fearful, but it's motivated by love. And if we learn nothing else here at Seacoast, I hope you've heard me say this before, because this is not a new idea. It's, it's basic to our faith. It's the Christian life in a nutshell. Now next week, by the way, is going to be how God reminds Israel of how faithful he's been over the years and how he's proven this love over the years in many, many different ways. We'll see that next week. But the big idea first is this. Love God. Cling to your God. And obey your God out of that love. And it's all motivated by grace. Now, that's point one. So why was he so concerned about this? When he pulled his leaders together and he's whispering his final message to them. It's because of point two. It's because not only does he want us to be strong in our affection for God, he wants us to be loyal and beware of what he calls spiritual adultery. He's already hinted at it beginning in verse 7. So I want to back up again in verse 7 and read the second half of this passage to you. Are you ready? Here we go. In other words, you need to be firm. You need to do all that's written in the Word for a reason so that you may not turn aside from it to the right or the left so that you will not... And he begins to unpack a series of phrases. Now, notice these. You can underline these too. So that you will not do several things. Here they are. Number one, associate with these other nations. The ones who believe in other gods. He says, don't associate with them. Now, these which remain among you. Or mention the name of their gods. Don't even talk about their gods. 
And obviously he's not saying, I mean, obviously he's mentioning their gods right here, okay? So he's not talking about don't mention them in the sense of beware of them, but in other words, don't begin to let them be comfortable in your conversation. And then he goes on. He says, don't mention the name of their gods or don't make anyone swear by them. You know, a lot of times people would tend to say, hey, I promise I'm going to do this and I swear by Almighty God that I'm going to do this. It was common in that culture to say, I swear by my God. So, you know, as they're doing business and there's people among them who believe in other gods, you can see where it'd be very tempting to to say, well, okay, I swear by Yahweh, the God of Israel, but, you know, whatever, uh, you know, but but it'd be easy to, impl- to, to, to be tempted maybe to, to have other people, well, swear to me by your God that you'll do that. And, and you shouldn't be doing that. Jesus, you know, often cautioned. Jesus said, just let your yes be yes, your no be no. Tell the truth. You don't need to be using God and swearing by God to prove something. Don't do that. But but you can see in that culture, it would be common. So as they're interacting with people, first he says, don't associate with them. And then again, don't, don't talk about their gods. Don't mention their names. Don't, uh, don't go swearing by these false gods. And, and, and then he says, and therefore, and it gets even more serious. For the Lord has driven out the, these, uh, these nations from before you. Let no one... Blah, blah, blah. So here it is. I skipped over it. Don't mention the name of their gods. Don't swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. You can see where it goes from the lightweight associate with them, kind of talk about them, uh, occasionally use them to, to seal a deal. Uh, and then next thing you know, you're serving them. And the next thing you know, you're bowing down and worshiping them. And you see there's a progression from the light association to all of a sudden the seduction of these gods has got their hooks into you. So number one is this. Be aware of spiritual adultery by doing these things. Number one, let me give you the breakdown. Monitor your friendships. Their influence is subtle but strong. That's what I was just teaching. I forgot to prompt the the call. In other words, what I'm saying is the influence of these gods in your mix is very subtle. It'll start with a casual association. Next thing you know, you'll find yourself serving them and bowing down to them. Be careful. Monitor your friendships. I forgot to double check with Jonathan. Jonathan, you're in the room, aren't you? Where did I see you? Jonathan Searle. Where are you? There you go. Yeah. Jonathan told me a story the other day about a, a, a friend, mentor, advisor of his a few years back who who said, if you, see if I get this right, and then you correct me. Okay, here we go. You can correct the sermon. No, the rest of you have to be quiet. But Jonathan can correct the sermon. And, and here's what, here's what I, I remember him saying. If you, this person said, if you show me your ten closest friends, I'll show you what you'll look like in ten years. Is that close? Good enough. Thank you. Especially since you work for me. That's good. That's good. <laughs> He'll correct me later. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, in other words, you show me your closest friends. Show me the ten people you hang out with the most that influence you the most, and I'll show you what you'll look like in ten years. Because we are all very affected by the people in our lives. And it's easy to say, yeah, you know, I, I, but, but I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm, I'm walking one path. And, and by the way, I'm not saying you should have no friendships or associations with those outside of the faith. I mean, we are told to be salt and light in the world. We're told to make a difference in the lives of our friends. You should have non-Christian friends. But I think you just need to be aware of the fact 
that if you if that's all the friends you have and that's the only people you're hanging out with and they're the greatest influencers in your life, it is easier to pull a person off of this table than to pull them up onto it. So beware when you're hanging out with those who follow other gods. Their influence is subtle but powerful. Number two, guard your affections. The false gods are masters of seduction. See, what he is getting at here is his concern that Israel, who the very God who delivered by grace the land to them, if you turn away from him and start flirting or having affairs with the gods, you're in deep trouble. You're going you're to be in deep trouble. Now, by the way, my wife and a lot of the women at Seacoast are studying the um, story of um, Midian, right? Gideon, 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 Midian, who cares? Yeah. Sorry, Gideon. Story of Gideon. Book of Judges. And the very next book in the Bible that follows chronologically with Joshua. Because what it is, it's the story of the next generation. And they do it. It's the story of the next generation of Israel beginning to flirt with the other gods and worship them. Now, it's interesting that if you just make note of this, look up Judges chapter 2, verse 6 through 13 this week, because you'll read the story that uh, I'll just read you two verses. Judges chapter 2, verse 10 says this. It says, all that generation, that is the generation of Joshua, were gathered to their fathers. Another little euphemism, you know, they, they croaked, okay, they, they, they died. They were gathered to their fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord. The gods in the region that are referred to as the ones that end up pulling off the seduction of Israel are referred to as Baal or the Baals. There are multiple gods. But Baal was the god of rain and fertility. Now, that's important. He's the god of rain and fertility of the Canaanites. And Ashtaroth was the female uh, consort of Baal. And, and these were the two that, they, that are mentioned in Judges that seduce Israel away from the God who had given them the land. Now, when you think about this, the God of their crops and fertility, or, or of the rain and fertility. Now, you may think, well, that's, Dale, what's this have to do with us? Okay, I'm not interested. Sure, we're in a drought here in California, but, you know, it's not going to cause me to worship the God of the rain or the God of fertility. But you know Why? Because this drought, unless it prolongs itself for multiple years, doesn't really affect your income. I mean, not directly. Very few of us, at least. Because unless you're a farmer or a herdsman who make your living by growing crops without irrigation, then you are pretty dependent upon what? Rain. 
And if you're a herdsman and you make your living by multiplying the size of your herd of sheep or goats or cattle or whatever, you make your living by what? Taking care of the old cow? Yes or no? No. It's by the new calf. It's by multiplying your herd. See, what these were, these were the gods that promised to deliver to you more income, more success, and more possessions. Because they're essential to your livelihood. In our culture, I would say the Baals were the gods of career and salary adjustments up. That's kind of what he's talking about. So, they were tempted. There were times, in fact, we know in which, in Judges, where they began to experience drought. They began to experience hardship. And, you know, and they're tempted because these other Canaanites are saying, you know, our God controls the rain. Our God is the God of the rain. Our God is the God of fertility. And by the way, the worship of these gods involved everything from, from animal sacrifice to occasionally human sacrifice to make those gods happy, to get those gods to deliver more rain, deliver more fertility, bring the herds up. It involved temple prostitution with both male and female prostitutes in the temple in the worship of the Canaanite gods. These are wicked gods. But you know, even wicked gods can promise to deliver rain if you need rain or fertility. Another observation about how these gods seduced Israel that will apply to our end of our message is this. Um, Charles Ryrie in his excellent little study Bible, he's got some of the greatest little study notes. If you want to keep one quick reference next to your desk, they're worth reading. He points out that in the, in the life of Israel, when, the, when, when they flirted with, with Baal and Ashtaroth, the, the other gods, the other gods of the Canaanites, it went like this. First, they, they would agree to just worship Baal, but as the little god, but Yahweh's still the big god. So they kept their God in the primary position, but they would worship these other gods as like secondary gods, you know? Nothing wrong with having another God in your pocket, right? Okay, and then it would progress, secondly, to making God like one of the Baals. Okay, uh, everyone's God is kind of equal, and you got Baal, you got Yahweh, and you got different gods, but now they're all kind of equal. And then the third step, as they got further away from God, is they stopped worshiping Yahweh altogether and became full-on worshipers of Baal. Now that progression is important because you need to realize that that's why the rest of this sermon makes sense. You need to guard your affection because false gods are masters of seduction. They don't come in the gate telling you not to believe in Jesus Christ and not to believe in your God. They don't do that because they know you would never buy into that nonsense. But they just kind of say, you know, sure, on Sunday, trust your God. But you know, on Monday, I'm your God. Because I'm the one that's going to deliver the goods. Number three. Therefore, honor your vows to your God. Be true with a loyal love to your God. That's why in verse 11 he says, cling to your God. To use a blunt analogy, what this is about is whether or not they were going to be sleeping around on Yahweh, sleeping around on their God. 
whether they're going to be flirting with false gods and getting in bed with them. That's the reality that is in the language of this text. And then number four, honor your vows and be warned that spiritual adultery is never without consequences. That God is a jealous God, and, you know, and, and, and it, there are consequences to saying, I believe in my God, but you know something? I'm going to put my trust and give my love and attention and worship to the gods of this culture. We'll identify those in a little bit. Now, this is the scary part of the passage, because he tells them that if they decide to run off and worship other gods, verse 14, now behold, today I'm going by the way of the earth, and you know in all your hearts, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words of the Lord your God spoken concerning you has failed. God is faithful. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. It shall come about, though, it shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Again, there's the grace part. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, it says you will perish quickly off the good land which he has given you. Now, he's talking here about his relationship to Israel as a nation and the land. And, and we're not living that scenario, but there's some parallels. In short, what he's saying is this. Look, God has promised the discipline of a heavenly father. God promised them, um, when Moses laid down the law, he promised them, you know, uh, choose me, choose life. Uh, love me and obey me and you will be experience more blessing. But like a disobedient child, if you choose to run off and sleep with the false gods, then I'm going to spank you, I'm going to discipline you, I will do something to try to draw you back to me and it will be painful. That's the big idea. That God expects his children to have a loyal love that's free of affairs. And then thirdly, that God's heart is to bless them but that love and obedience is part of that great blessing. I think sometimes in, in our life today, if I can just bring this into play and, and think of how does this relate to you and to me and the promise of life in Christ. And here it is in a nutshell. You are saved by grace. There's no doubt about that. Okay, you are saved by grace, not by your works. You don't earn it and you don't keep it. It is a work of the grace of God. Because all of us still sin. So, you know, you're saved by grace, and you need to walk under grace, because none of us get this perfect. You are secured by grace. And I believe, personally, that you cannot lose salvation that is authentically yours, because you're forgiven. You, you are kept secure by the grace of God, not by your own good works. If you're secured by your own uh, performance, you're in trouble, because you're not that good. Neither am I. But real life is expected to show fruit, that God expects to see fruit in our life. And I think the big idea of Scripture is that where there is no fruit, you should at least step back and ask yourself, am I really rooted in grace? Am I really rooted in a, in a, in a sincere uh, faith and love for Christ? Or have I just grown up around doing church? 
So at times, it's important to realize that. So I would break it down this way. Your eternal security is based only on God's grace. You're saved by grace through faith plus nothing. That's crystal clear. But your personal sense of assurance of that salvation grows as you are faithful to God and fruitful and you see the evidence of Him at work in your life. And if there is no fruit, there may not be a root and you should step back and and get honest with yourself and God and re-examine your relationship with Jesus. Now, we don't have time to unpack that in detail, but I felt it was important to hit it. What I do want to end with, though, we have about five minutes, is this. And that is, there is this wonderful mystery behind this passage that is repeated in the New Testament, and that is that the marriage of Christ and His church is like a husband-wife relationship. That, that marriage is a symbol of the relationship God, through Christ, has with His church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, right in the middle of this passage where he's talking about how husbands are to sacrifice themselves to, to, to love their wives sacrificially with a sacrificial love, and wives are to follow and respect and, and follow the leadership of their husbands and encourage them. Uh, and, and, and he says that they do it just as, just as we follow Christ. And, and this relationship is is, and, and, and then he stops in verse 31 on this long passage about marriage between a husband and a wife, and he says, oh, and the mystery in all this is I'm talking about Christ in the church. And then he goes back into, oh, and by the way, let me talk some more about marriage. And, and this little statement that you can read this week in Ephesians 5, do the, five of, do the daily encounters with God, and, and you'll, I'll take you into this passage. But here is, therefore, how I land this conversation today because i believe what joshua is saying to them what i'm saying to you today is this number one have you said i do to jesus are you a fan of jesus or a follower because fans don't go to heaven followers do the word disciple means follower and I think sometimes in our culture, it's, hey, Jesus is really cool. He's one of the many gods in my life. Jesus says, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for you to embrace me like a husband and a wife embrace each other at the altar and say, till death do us part, I commit myself to you. There's that sense of, of lifelong discipleship commitment where you marry Jesus. But in the relationship, don't, be, don't, don't, don't get it wrong, whether you're a man or a woman, in this relationship, you are the wife who is respectfully, submissively, lovingly following the leadership of her sacrificial loving husband. Because Jesus was the one on the cross laying his life down, and he deserves your love, trust, and obedience. It flows out of that. Have you said, I do? Number two, which false god is seducing your soul? You say, well, but I don't care about the Baals and the Astroths. In the appointments with God, you will read this week 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Write it down. 1 John 2, 15 to 17. It says that the gods of this world are the lust of the flesh, Lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. 
But it says, but these gods are not real. They go away. They don't last like Jesus. And I think when we look to those gods of our culture, gods of the lust of the flesh, that's pleasure, lust of the eyes, that's possessions, boastful pride of life, that's success, career. When we make those our gods, we miss real life. Now, there's nothing wrong. In fact, I believe when you make Jesus your real God, life becomes more pleasurable And I think that you actually can enjoy whatever level of prosperity he brings to you, whether you have little or much, because you don't worship it. You can just enjoy it, but you, but your, 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 your worship and your, and your, and your sacrifice and your love is focused on Christ. And these other things are, are blessings that he allows us to enjoy, but they are kept in their proper place. But I think all of us, including myself, I, think that these false gods tempt me. It's very tempting in Southern California to be tempted by uh, the God of the lust of the eyes. You know, you see, you want. Wow, they have that. I wish I had that. You know, I mean, and I don't have enough. I could go on and on. But which false God seduces your soul? Ask yourself that question this week. Number three, are you sleeping around on Jesus? I think it's a very good question. You say, well, I'm not sleeping around, but are you flirting with the gods? Because that's the first step toward a full-on affair. And I, I believe that if, if, if we were honest, probably every one of us in this room at times flirt with the gods. Because we live in a culture, unlike Israel, where there weren't just a few Canaanites mixed around We are living in a culture in which the vast majority of the culture bow down and worship the gods of pleasure, possession, and pride. So to think you're not tempted in this world, you're you're, you're fooling yourself. So let's really be aware of it. And then you say, what do you do? Is it time to renew your vows? Is it time to renew your vows and to say, you know, God, yeah, At times, I I love this world too much. And you you know where you go if that's your conclusion this morning? Even if you're full on having an affair with another lover instead of Jesus, you go back to where it started, grace. You let the grace of God so enamor your soul that a slut like me, who's sleeping with every god around in Southern California, that even if that is how you feel right now, the grace of God is bigger than your slutty behavior. You don't hear that in church very often, do you? (laughs) So let that grace cause you to love, and let that love cause you to trust. Let that trust cause you to obey and you will discover more life than you could ever find sleeping with false gods let's pray father thank you wow thank you for this reminder not for israel but for us and father we probably all confess that we flirt too much with the gods but we thank you that you 
provide for all of our needs in Christ. And we want to keep our affection focused. We want to be diligent to love you. We want to cleave to you only and trust you. And then we want to just live in radical obedience to your word. And as we do that, we know that we do it only by your grace. And that's what keeps bringing us back. Thank you for being the only God who deals in grace. We love you a lot. Thank you for the chance we have at Seacoast to grow in you. Father, thank you that even now as we worship and reflect on this, we're going to give to you. And God, I challenge each of us to give generously. Just give in a way that reflects as we give and tithe and sacrifice for you. We pray that our giving more and more will reflect that you are the God that we love. In Christ's name, amen.